Good morning, good morning. My name's Mike. I'm one of the leaders here at Ocean City Church. And welcome all the regular 1115ers and welcome all the nine o'clockers that just couldn't make it happen this morning. Daylight savings time, uh, and, but you made it, so great job. Um, so uh, we started last week in our Come and Listen series, and that's where we're going through the Bible, starting in Genesis and slowly working our way. We're now in 2 Kings. We've been at it since 2014, kind of in and out, and so we're in 2 Kings chapter 5 this morning. Um, thanks, Shelley, for reading that. So <clears throat> we have the story of Naaman. And, uh, and it's all about a cure. And so in preparation, I listened to several cure songs, um, and they were not helpful, actually. Um, very catchy, um, but not helpful in my sermon prep. Um, they were in my head all week. I could not get them out. It was a mistake. Um, but so, uh, so we're talking about the cure, and today we're going to look into, dig into three questions. And the questions are, what did Naaman need to be cured from? What should we expect from God's cure? And then lastly, what is the true cost of the cure? So first up, what did Naaman need to be cured from? Leprosy, duh, obvious. Next question. Um, nope, don't worry, this sermon will be plenty long. Let's dive in. Um, so, so the commentaries, when they talk about leprosy, um, in the Bible, it could mean a couple of things. One, it could mean actual leprosy, which is Hansen's disease. I had to look that up. Um, or it could be other fatal skin diseases. They're all kind of all-encompassing, but I think fatal is the key word. And when you hear it talked about in the Bible, that term leprosy, I think it put in today's context, would be the same as like a terminal cancer diagnosis. Like it is a big deal you're going down, it was contagious, and it is, it is bad news, um, very bad news. So our main character here is Naaman, um, and it says he was commander of the army of the king of Syria, and we've got to dig into some context because it's fascinating. So let's first talk about Syria at this time. So we are in the period between 900 and 800 BC, roughly, and the Syrian Empire at the time, historians called it the Neo-Assyrian Empire. I had to look that one up too. Um, and they said that they, at the time, fielded the most effective fighting force in the world, the first to be armed with iron weapons and whose tactics, including cavalry and chariots in battle, made them invincible. The, the, Assyri the Syrian Empire, they conquered the entire region and eventually even controlled Egypt. The, in some of the history Wikipedia things I found, uh, at this time that we're in, in our Bible, Bible context, it was the height of the Syrian Empire. They were the largest empire in the world so far in history. And so who was Naaman? He was the commander of the army of the most powerful empire in the world in history. So he's a big deal, like real big deal. So the best analogy when we look at some other parts of the passage that we have for Naaman's position, <clears throat> the best analogy to that might be like a, like a military prime minister. So I mean, second in command to the king and, you know, kind of names that came to my mind of things that he might be equivalent to would be like a, 
like a Napoleon or a Caesar or Washington or Eisenhower um, or a Churchill. That's like the level Naaman's at. You might have never heard of him, but back then, like the whole world probably heard of Naaman. So, and this fascinatingly checks out with what he took with him to Israel. So he took 10 talents of silver. Um, so get out your calculators. We're going to calculate a little bit. So that's, a, that's 750 pounds of silver. So at today's silver rates, whatever those are, um, that's about $207,000. That's a lot. Okay? 6,000 shekels of gold. Who knows what a shekel is, but I looked it up. It's 150 pounds of gold. Okay? At today's rate, that is... million worth of gold that he's taking with him to go get him healed. That's a lot, right? Oh my gosh. I mean, like for our worst diseases, like the cancers and stuff, I mean, those costs are in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And this is like almost an order of magnitude more than that, that he is bringing with him to hopefully cure him of his leprosy crazy. He was an important dude. And the dude was good at his job. You see it in verse one. He says, he was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him, the Lord had given victory to Syria. So he was valuable to the king. And it is not a stretch to think that Naaman was a big part of this rise of the largest empire in the world in history, right? So are you that good at your job? I'm not. Can you imagine going to your boss and saying, hey, I'm dealing with this health thing, but I've heard of a, of a solution. I know it's, it's kind of been compromising my performance, but I think I can get it fixed. Does your boss give you $4 million to go figure it out? He says, okay, great. Go figure it out because I need you in fighting form back at, at full capacity. My boss would not do that. Um, but so he is a big deal. I mean, Naaman had reached the height of success and power, and wealth. He was a great man. And all of that was from a lifetime of work and achievement. He had made it. And yet, verse 2, we are smacked with the fact that he has leprosy. A debilitating condition. All that achievement that he had made, all of that work was about to just evaporate from this disease. And you can imagine if you're naming, that leads you to a spot of desperation. You can see how fast he acted to that news that there might be a cure out there or someone who could know how to handle this. He had come across something in leprosy that he was not able to conquer or outmaneuver. And so he's stuck and desperate. And what's, what's cool is if we look at this passage and if you look carefully Everything about it is revolving around uh, attacking Naaman's pride and attacking his self-sufficiency. So if you look through the narrative, every uh, progress step, every new thing that gets him closer to the cure all comes from servants. So verse 3, his wife's servant told him about the prophet in Samaria. Verse 10, it was Elisha's messenger that told him to go wash in the Jordan. And then verse 13, his servants were the ones ultimately to convince him to actually wash in the Jordan River and be cleaned. 
So this entire story is a slow humbling, a slow chipping away at Naaman so that he could receive the cure. And we got to imagine this scene when Naaman's rolling up to Elisha's house. I mean, can you, so, I mean, he's got his whole posse, his whole entourage coming. He's got all these, I don't know, chariots of gold or whatever. It says he brought 10 sets of clothes. I guess that's a big deal. I don't know. At the time, maybe people didn't have, maybe they're fancy clothes. I don't know. Brought some Nikes with him. He rolls up to Elisha, and then Elisha doesn't even come out. Like, how much of a slap in the face is that? Like, can you imagine being like the messenger? And Elisha's like, yeah, just go tell him this. And, he's, and the messenger's like, okay, whatever you say, boss. And like, here's the message, and then you run away real fast. Um, he doesn't even come out. And the message, just wash yourself. Just go over there. Just wash yourself. Don't even bother stopping by afterwards. Just, just handle it. So let's read again Naaman's response to Elisha's solution to go wash in the Jordan. This is verse 11 and 12. It says, But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Can I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Naaman was offended by this whole scene. Have you ever been offended by God and something that he has said to you? The good thing is you're in good company, right? Um, Not only with Naaman, but with me. Like he's God and we're not. And some of the things he says and directs us to are not what we think, how, how we think it should go. So Naaman was offended. <clears throat> Elisha didn't even come out to acknowledge him. I mean, can you imagine Naaman, you know, the reaction of like, doesn't he know who I am? Doesn't he know with one word I could send an entire army and wipe out this entire country? And he doesn't even come out and acknowledge me. And then what, in this direction from Elisha's, Elisha's messenger, just wash That's it. Anyone can wash. And in the Jordan, which was not a glamorous river, I did some Google image searching. I found this one of the Jordan River. Not great. Kind of underwhelming. This is like a medium picture. Some, the water's like a little bit browner. Someone's a little bit clearer. This is kind of middle of the road. So not only that, I mean, anyone can wash. A child could wash. A a weak cripple that can't do anything could wash. And part of the lesson here for us and for Naaman is that when God goes after something deep in our hearts, something that we are desperately clinging to for our self-worth, the reaction is strong. Because we have made this, this one thing into an ultimate thing, and to lose it would feel like the death of us. So Naaman's success and power gave him that self-worth. He had earned it. And this method of healing was totally threatening that. And so his response was rage. Tim Keller does a good job in kind of summarizing this feeling that Naaman's having here. He says, Just wash yourself, then, was a command that was hard because it was so easy. To do it, Naaman had to admit he was helpless and weak and had to receive this salvation as a free gift. 
If you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But that kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster. We come to God saying, look at all I've done. Or maybe, look at all I've suffered. God, however, wants us to look to him to just wash. So Naaman came to God wanting a healing of leprosy of the skin. The skin disease that was slowly killing him from the outside in. That was the cure that he wanted. However, God knew what he needed. Not what he wanted, but what he needed was a cure for this pride that he had. This cure for this leprosy of the heart that was killing him from the inside out. And had largely gone unnoticed. He needed a cure for his sin problem. Naaman was clinging, and you see it in the text. He was clinging to his power and his reputation and his success, and it was killing him. Not from the outside in, but from the inside out. At his very core, the very thing that he had staked his life on was not going to bring him life. It was going to destroy him. His sin was killing him. So what about you? Are you you looking to God to cure your circumstances while ignoring maybe the deeper sin problem? I do that. I mean, I, I like if something's uncomfortable or painful, it's like, God, I want, like, fix this. And it's like, and maybe he's saying, well, what about this other thing? I was like, don't worry about that. Just leave that there. Fix this thing. This is the thing that's hurting right now. I just need immediate relief. We'll deal with that later. And instead, God's saying, no, we need to deal with the thing that needs to be dealt with. And a lot of times I do not want that. So what do you need to be cured from? Maybe it's something obvious like leprosy. Maybe it's a physical thing that you're dealing with. But we all walked in needing a cure for this hidden this leprosy of the heart, this sin problem. Just like Naaman, we all need to be humbled and brought to a place of desperation. As scary as that is, that is where God does his work. Naaman needed a cure for his sinful heart, just like we do. But what does that cure look like? How does it happen? How does this work? And that brings us to our next question. What should we expect from God's cure. Now, before we get into that, I think it's, it's tempting anytime you read the Bible to kind of read it with like blinders on. Like this is the passage and this has all the answers to what I'm trying to figure out here. And if you did that, I mean, we might expect that, okay, where's the nearest river? We got to go jump. Here we go. Let's go wash. Let's do it seven times. Shoot, let's do it 70 times. Who knows? Let's just go wash. Or maybe you're even more extreme and you're like, I'm booking a trip to Tel Aviv, I'm going to the Jordan River and to jump in that nasty brown water. Like, that's what God says he's got to do, so I'm going to do like what the passage says. But whenever we're <clears throat> dealing with any parts of the Bible, the whole, the whole Bible itself, all of Scripture is God telling us about who he is and how he works. And so for this, we want to, yes, look at this passage, but also help interpret this passage with other passages to help us understand what God is like. So as we try to answer this question, what should we expect from God's cure? 
we'll find in Naaman's story and maybe the rest of Scripture, I think just three quick things. And there's many things, but we're going to talk about three quick ones today. The first one is we can expect that God's cure is unexpected. So think about expectations here. I mean, our, our background, our worldviews, our experiences to date kind of shape our expectations and how we deal with God. Let's think about Naaman. So he was a politician, a conqueror. So he expected to need to use his great, you know, political leverage and might to defeat leprosy. That's his context. That's his, what he deals with. Just like he defeated all his other foes, he wanted to defeat this one. And this is not an uncommon approach to any of this stuff. I mean, even in our own hearts, in our own culture today. Like, think about all our favorite movies, right? Our favorite movies are not, oh, just go wash movie over. No, it's you got to go get the broomstick of the Wicked Witch of the West. That's how you're going to conquer it. you got to destroy all seven horcruxes for all you Harry Potter fans, right? we got to throw the ring of power into Mount Doom. We've got to find all the infinity stones, right? Great things um, is what we expect in our culture. And it's not just movies. It's religions, too. So religions, even back in this time and today, um, Expect if you want something great, you gotta earn it. You gotta be good enough, smart enough, and have people like you, right? And so, and and that was Naaman's context too. All religions, all other religions at this time, the blessings of the gods were given to the powerful and the successful. So Naaman expected that the most powerful and successful people in Israel were the ones that would be closest to this God that might provide some healing. And so that's where he goes first. Thinking that God works through success and through achievement. So Naaman brought a letter of recommendation from the most powerful person in the world and $4 million with him. Right? But God, we know, we know that God cannot be bought or paid for by us. That's the whole point of the beautiful good news of the gospel. One commentator talked about this idea of expectation. He said this, he said, here folks allege, is the God I trusted, and he let me down with the prayer that went unanswered or the disaster that was undeserved. Some people usually set up in their minds what they think God ought or ought not to do. And when he apparently fails to toe their particular line, they feel a sense of grievance. Naaman fits this mold, and perhaps we do as well. We not only want God's benefit, but we want to specify the way in which he must bring it. So the sovereign God has become our errand boy. And man, that cuts deep. Like I, and Derek talked a little bit about it last week in the talk. Like I want control. I want to go to God and say, okay, here's what I need. Step A, B, C, and D. And then, because I want to get to here, right? God, so I need you to do this first and then this and then this, and then we'll all be happy in the end, Right? But since when are my plans the best plans? I think they are, but often I am wrong, right? So our expectations are, have to be set right, and God is an unexpected God. I mean, just look at how Jesus approached uh, like all the people in the gospel. So here, I'll just rattle off a few. So there was another guy with leprosy in Mark 2. Jesus just touched him, and he was healed. He didn't have to jump in a river. He just got touched. There was the rich young ruler, uh, and Jesus told him, sell all your stuff and follow me. 
Naaman was way wealthier than that dude, and that isn't even talked about in our passage. Like, shouldn't that be a thing if that's a thing? Nicodemus in John 3 was told he had to be born again. When Jesus healed people, he, he touched some people. Some people touched his clothes. Some he just spoke to. Others he healed um, like remotely, like they weren't even in the same area. He just spoke and somewhere someone got healed. One guy, he spit in his eyes, and another guy, he rubbed mud on his eyes, and they got healed. And this is so hard for me, y'all, so hard, right? Because so, I'm, a, I'm a rules, procedures, process, like a if this, then that. Like, I want it to work, right? Like a conveyor belt. Like, okay, we're going to put our sickness on the deal, and then it's going to choop, 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 boom, heal, ding, right? Because I want to be able to control it. I want the process. Just tell me what to do do this thing, and then this happens. Like, that's how I want to deal with God. But God is an unexpected God. Expect the unexpected. God may not give you what you want, but maybe like Naaman, he's giving you what you need. In Naaman's case, he did both. He's God. He sees everything, and he knows you better than you know yourself, if you can believe that. And every one of us, we've got our own just unique struggles No life is the same. No set of experiences and hurt and pain is ever the same. We've all got a unique version of this leprosy of the heart. We have our own thing that we're holding on to, like it's life or death. And just how how amazing and wonderful that we've got a God that is not a conveyor belt God that puts you on there and runs you through. Instead, we've got a God that is so personal, that is so, that knows you so well, he deals with you uniquely. That's amazing. In a unique and specific way. So first, the cure, we can expect it to be unexpected. Second, we can expect that God's cure hurts. So think about Naaman's leprosy of the heart. God needed to cure him of relying on his own success and power to save him, to give him life. And think about this. I mean, that, that's destroying the one thing that Naaman was holding on to as his self-worth. When he looked at himself in the mirror, he saw the resume and said, okay, I'm all right. And God is going directly after that. And if you're holding on to that as your self-worth and God takes that away, at least for a brief moment, you feel worthless. Because that thing is gone. There's what, what is going to replace it? And that feeling of worthlessness, that's about as painful as anything out there in our world, I think. So Naaman's, when he responds with rage, it makes sense, right? If someone took that one thing from you, you'd get upset. That's the one thing. How dare God go after that? God's cure hurts because it cuts to the core of us. So Naaman's story reminds me of my favorite story in the Chronicles of Narnia. So it comes from Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So there's this character, Eustace, um, and he was the worst. Like, no friends, super mean, everyone hated him, not a good kid. Um, And basically he came across this island uh, where it had some cursed treasure. And he saw the cursed treasure and actually stole this, like, gold ring and put it on his arm. And the story goes, when he woke up the next morning, he had turned into 
a dragon. And yet this ring was the same size, and so it was like pinching his arm um, because his arm was now a dragon arm, and he was in this great pain. And he dealt with that for days, and then eventually he came to a spot of desperation and ran into Aslan the lion, who leads him to this pool, this healing pool. And Eustace, who's a dragon now, realizes, okay, I need to get these dragon scales off because I'm not going to be able to experience the healing of the pool with all these dragon scales. And so he kind of claws away at them and, you know, eventually kind of like peels his skin kind of like a snake, but like the scales are still there. And he does it three times and it doesn't work and he can't get into the pool of healing. Um, and then this is where our, our, we pick up in the narrative and it says, then the lion says, but I don't know if it spoke You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began peeling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I would no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. As soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why I'd turn into a boy again. So it is, it is only God that can go deep enough to cure our heart. All your attempts, all my attempts to cure myself, they're all superficial and ineffective. Because to go deep enough to where it makes a difference, it hurts. And I'm in self-preservation mode. I don't want it to hurt. I'm trying to prevent the hurt. That's the whole point of me trying to get this healing going. We must lie on our backs like Eustace. I love that image. Just like, all right, go for it to lie on our backs and let God do it. So I have my own experience with God's painful cure. I've shared it before, but to summarize it quickly, so I grew up in church. So I was a good kid, godly kid, whatever that meant. Um, I was in the youth group, like a leader, worship leader, all that kind of stuff. And yet that during that whole season for years in middle school and high school, I was struggling with addiction to pornography and told no one intentionally, like no one could find out this thing that I was struggling with because my self-worth, the thing that I was holding on to tightly was the reputation, was the people seeing me as, oh, he's got it like all together. Cool. Um, in college, just like Naaman, God helped me see finally that it was this, this leprosy of my heart and that it was killing me from the inside out. And basically knew that, you know, I had to tell someone. I had to confess that this was a struggle that I had, and it was painful because, I mean, the, the reputation and the, 
the acclaim that came from being a good kid and all that stuff, it, I just saw it and I was like, that's all going to go away. And it was painful and terrifying. But, but just like Eustace in the pool, once I started like telling people about that, the, the freedom and the grace was overwhelming. So I mean, for me, it was, it, I realized like there was this weight of guilt and shame that I was just carrying all day, every day. And I was starting to taste this freedom and grace. And when I look back now, the pain, and it was painful. I mean, I had to go to buddies where I shared with them, and they were like, why didn't you tell us? It's like, I don't, I don't know. You know, I just, I don't know. But I'm telling you now. And that pain of letting that self-worth thing that I was holding on to go away, the pain was momentary and insignificant when I look back compared to now what I get to live in in the grace of God. It's insignificant in comparison. By the time, it definitely hurt, just like Eustace, just like Naaman. So, thirdly, we can expect that God's cure is complete. So for Naaman, we see by the grace of God that he was cured of his leprosy. More importantly, he had been cured of his leprosy of the heart. His pride, his sin problem was cured. When Naaman returns to Elisha, you see it clearly here. He is not the same. There is a transformation that has happened. And I think it's that thing that indicates that, yes, more than just leprosy had been cured in Naaman. He constantly now is referring to himself uh, as your servant when speaking to Elisha, when you would not have heard that beforehand, right? And even as Naaman heads back to Syria, it's a polytheistic nation. And we see later that, you know, he's going to go in and continue worshiping the Lord. He'll be a missionary, a light for Yahweh, the God of Israel in a dark place. There had been transformation in his heart. Just as God had transformed his skin and made it spotless, this saving grace that came from God transformed his heart and will continue to transform his heart. So God's cure for Naaman was complete, both of the immediate suffering that he wanted to get solved and the deep spiritual need that he had that only God could cure. Now, what's hard about this is that many people in this room, both professing Christians and non-Christians, are dealing with significant things. Many of us walked in today bearing some big things, some big stuff, suffering, debilitating situations. Physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And to hear that God's healing is complete is a hard thing. Because the next question that I'm going to ask, that you're going to ask is, well, why isn't God completely healing me right now? Why do I still have to deal with this? Great, he saved my sins, and yet I'm still dealing with this thing. And that, that's a difficult question to answer. Many wrestle with it. At OCC, we, we believe that There is power in the Holy Spirit. We see in the New Testament that the Holy Spirit provides physical healing. And we believe that that's something that's available today. 
right now. Healing could happen today. That thing that you brought in, that could be healed today. We believe that God is both powerful enough and wants that to happen. Our God, however, as we've discussed, is an unexpected, an unexpected God. He will absolutely give you he- the healing you need today, but it may not be the healing that you want. And as hard as that is to wrestle with and deal with, one thing I can say confidently is that God ultimately promises to bring complete healing for everyone everywhere. We see that in Revelation. He promises it, in fact. In chapter 21, verse 4, he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, not crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. for These words are trustworthy and true. So what should we expect from God's cure? That it's unexpected, that it hurts, and that it's complete. And by the grace of God, there is healing today. There is transformation today available. Right now, just like Naaman, God can cure us completely. And that is, that is amazing news, that that is available, that that's possible, that there's a way. It's amazing. But I think inherently, just in all of our human thinking, is that there's got to be a catch. It can't be that easy, that free. It can't just be just wash. There's no way. What's the catch? This is too good to be true. And that brings us to our last question today. What is the true cost of the cure? So just like Naaman, we expect something great to come at great cost, right? That's how the world works. So Naaman, you know, he brings $4 million. He brings the letter from the king of the world, essentially, um, a letter of recommendation that took him a lifetime of effort to learn at great cost. Yet Elisha makes it quite clear to Naaman that the healing was not something that he could pay for, that he could purchase He says, just wash. That's all you need. All you need is need. Naaman, after he's been healed, both physically and spiritually, and this is after he's been humbled and healed in his heart, offers a gift of gratitude, which is how it's supposed to work. The healing comes first, and then the gratitude comes, and the, like, wanting to outpour and say, well, I've been healed, like, as a thank you. Please just take it. Yet, Elijah was under, he refused, and he was under strict commands from God to make sure that Naaman knew that his cure could not be purchased, that it was a free gift from God. So it's like God telling Elijah, he's going to try, and it's great. His heart is in the right place, but don't take it. He's got to know that there's no doubt that it was free for him. This was so, so important for him to know, in particular because of his struggle, that this cure was not purchased. There were no terms to negotiate. He didn't have a seat at the table um, to try to help negotiate the price. His requirement was just to receive the gift, just wash. The only thing you need is need. So for Naaman, the cost of the cure was nothing, nothing. However, there was a price paid for this cure in this story. And what's crazy is the person who paid this price, you didn't even notice. 
when we read the narrative. Let's go back to verse 2 and 3. It says, Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my, would that my Lord were with the prophet in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. And think about this. So this, this little girl, in the best of circumstances, she was ripped from her family and from her home and now is now living with and serving the very person responsible for this huge tragedy in her life. That, that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is her family was killed in front of her and she was dragging, dragged away from her home and the sky lit up as her village was burning as she was being carted away to Syria. And now she has to serve the person responsible for what is probably the greatest tragedy in her life. And when someone wrongs you, not, not only like that, but even in little things, what is our default as humans? Our default is bitterness, right? Our default is revenge, vindication, judgment, right? You cause me pain and I've got to cause you some kind of pain to help you understand of how much you hurt me. And there's so many examples. Like when you're driving on the highway and the person passes you at 110 miles an hour, oh gosh, you want them to be pulled over two miles later, right? You're like, yes, I told you. Like no one gets a free shot. But more seriously than that, you know, when a, when a coworker takes credit for something that you did, or maybe blames you for something that you did not do, that's an injustice. You want them to suffer. You want justice. Your reputation has been hurt and you want revenge. You want them to be exposed and to suffer for this injustice. Think about when a family member or a close friend hurts you. We wanna punish them with the silent treatment, hoping that maybe if, you, if I take away the relationship, that's punishment for you, that you'll kind of taste the suffering that you've caused me because I'm pulling away. We want vindication. It is the default in us, and that is what makes forgiveness so hard. Because to forgive someone means that you are no longer seeking vindication or revenge or them suffering. Basically, you're saying, okay, I forgive you, you don't have to suffer. But that doesn't mean that the suffering and the pain and the hurt goes away. You're just saying, I'm not putting that on you. I'm just gonna keep that on me. I'm just gonna deal with that now. Instead of them suffering, you are accepting and bearing the suffering of the wrong that has been done. And that is costly. The pain, the frustration, it is very costly. And so what do we expect from this little girl? Right, we expect... You know, she was ripped from her family and now she's serving this, her captor and he's got this deadly disease and he's withering away. We expect, I expect that she would just sit back and say, had it coming. I'm just gonna sit back gleefully and watch you die. That's what I expect. That's what we expect. Justice is served. He's getting what he deserves. Yet instead, we see her bear the pain herself and instead seek the health of her master. This girl with no name, she doesn't even have a name in the story. 
yet she was undoubtedly part of the remnant of Israel, the, the people that had not yet given their hearts away to idols and to Baal, but instead continued to worship Yahweh. She knew that there was healing for him. This amazing love from the girl with no name. She bore the pain, she forgave, and sought the cure of her master. In this story, this was the cost for Naaman's cure. So what is the true cost for the cure, for our cure? We have this leprosy of the heart, and we all to some degree think that we can solve this ourselves. And to God, that's such a deep wound and rebellion because he said, no, that's not how I designed it. I designed it for you to need me. And to say, nope, I don't need you. I'm gonna go figure this out on my own has caused him such pain for his creation to reject him. And this great rejection, this great hurt, it needs forgiveness. Someone has got to bear the weight of that suffering and that pain. And the great news is, is that God has mercy and forgiveness for us. There is an ocean of grace, like we talk about here at OCC, for all of us. And it is transformational. And for us, for us, it's free, just like it was for Naaman. It's amazing. You don't have to do anything. It's free. But a price had to be paid. Forgiveness is not free. Someone has to pay the price. And the only being that can bear that much pain of that rebellion and not be destroyed was God himself. And so while our little girl did not have a name in our story, our loving servant, the one that bears our pain and suffering, that we deserve has a name and his name's Jesus. On the cross, it was Jesus saying, I, I forgive him and I'm gonna take it all. I'm gonna take all the pain, all the punishment so that they can be cured. And because he paid it all, it's free for us. There's no payment needed. There's no quota of good deeds that you have to hit. It's free. You don't need anything. Just wash. Just wash in the ocean of grace. And I want to close with a hymn. Um, it's called It Is Finished. And just this quick stanza, it says, listen to this. It says, cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him and him alone gloriously complete. Please stand as we were going to respond in worship. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the depths of it. And also thank you for the simplicity. Thank you, God, that your grace is free. Thank you that you paid it all to heal us, to bring us the cure that we could not handle on our own. We could not cure ourselves, even though we try. Thank you, Lord, for all of this. It is all praise is deserved by you.